Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. So let me start my talk, um, which has got this wonderful title of Precarious Progress. This is the first time that I've ever used visuals and did a talk like this. It's supposed to be a distinguished lecture series. Um, and I'm going to do a, a picture series. And I'm going to ask you to walk with me through the last 40 years, um, quickly through the pictures, because I think the pictures tell a thousand stories, more than perhaps my words can ever tell. And when the Prime Minister of Britain, Tony Blair, has just written a book, um, and he's called his book A Journey, um, and when we were negotiating with Prime Minister Blair, um, I remember him once sitting, being very weary and very tired, and I said to him, you know, Peace is a bit like domestic violence. When the women leave a violent relationship, everyone leaves them and thinks that they've walked away and that they're safe. And in fact, that's probably one of the most dangerous moments because, as you know, that the person who's been perpetrating the violence will say, if I can't have you, no one else will. Um, and those women are living in tense and threatening situations. And I said, you know, we have to remember that leaving violence behind is a process and not an event. And I used to use that all the time in trying to get social workers and doctors and nurses to understand domestic violence, that because she had left, that was the event, but to make her safe was a process. And I remember him looking at me thinking, well, that's a great sound bite. Peace is a process and not an event. And lo and behold, I got his book last week, and guess what was in it? <laughs> Peace is a process, not an event. And I thought, you stole that from me. Um, <laughs> But I let it go, because if the Prime Minister of Britain can use it, that's okay with me. Um, but I hope he remembers that it came from the story of domestic violence when he is using it. But we did go from conflict to ceasefires, um, and the conflict lasted 30 awful years, and led us eventually to into negotiations, which I'll talk about. And many of you will have heard John Paul Lederach and others talk about conflict management, moving to conflict resolution, moving to transformation. Well, we've had our peace agreement, and we have had terrible trouble implementing it. And we are in a stage of reconstructing damaged lives, damaged friendships, damaged people, um, and damaged country. Um, and I'm not sure that we're still at the moment of transformation. But as I get to the end of my talk, I'll show you a few moments of wonderful transformation, which are giving us some heart in Northern Ireland now. I remember the Palestinians and Israeli women who I've had the privilege of walking and talking with at different moments, and they have so far to go, and even this afternoon, if you've been reading about what's happening there, you could get very depressed. Um, but to keep our hearts up, and I remember them always saying to me, it's very strange that every time your process is down, ours appears to go up, and every time that yours is up, ours appears to go down. And it is like that. We have been through this roller coaster. Um, and I hope and pray, like many others do, that someday peace will also come to the Middle East as it has to Northern Ireland. But I can only tell you our story, as others have told us their stories, particularly the wonderful people from Africa and indeed President Mandela from South Africa, who was part of our story, and I'll talk about that later, um, and indeed to, to Guatemala. But this is the kind of activism that we went through. Later you will see that political leaders asked us, where did those women come from, as if we'd fallen out of the air? Well, we came from somewhere. 
We started as accidental activists. What do I mean by accidental activists? We accidentally fell in to activism. If something awful was happening, we rose up, we took to the streets, we marched, we demanded that the situation changed, and we responded. And sometimes that was the only way that we could do it. We cut our teeth on civil rights activism. All over the world, and today and yesterday, you've seen in the US papers that it's the 50th anniversary of John F. Kennedy uh, coming to uh, being the President of the United States. And the whole civil rights movement that was happening here came right across the Atlantic in waves and hit Europe. And it certainly hit us in Northern Ireland when we watched on our television screens what was happening. Um, and again, civil rights began to take off. And we began to march. To my shame, I marched with a banner which said, one man, one vote. So feminism hadn't actually hit me at that stage. Um, and I'm not going to show you that photograph. And then we had a terrible conflict in terms of lots of combatants, lots of activism. Um, and during the final nights of the peace negotiation, when we tried to get some women's rights into the final peace agreement or some recognition of women for the future into the peace agreement, this awfully nice British official asked me, well, what's this got to do with women? Um, and I tried to think desperately how I would answer him. And I said, well, you know, sir, we did live in an armed patriarchy. And he thought for a moment and he said, well, that's okay. Yes, that sounds good. Well, what is it that you want? And you'll see later what we wanted. But the armed patriarchy somehow worked with him that it wasn't just a society that was very conservative that we were living in, but much of it was armed as well. Then we had the wonderful peace women and peace activism. And, of course, some of you may have read about Maria Corrigan as she was, Maria McGuire today, who's just been deported from Israel from being on one of the flotillas, um, and Betty Williams, and they won the Nobel Peace Prize. But there was a lot of confrontation amongst those women. They changed their name from the peace women uh, to the peace people, which many thought was a mistake. Um, but there was um, a lot of engaging with their differences in terms of their focus on peace when others were also saying it must be peace with justice. Feminist activism was much smaller, but rose and grew and became a snowball and made connections with all this various type of activism. And some of it was welcomed and some of it wasn't. And eventually this led us to party political activism. And we eventually decided, building on all of what went before, that the time was right to form a party. And today I work in human rights as the Chief Commissioner for Human Rights. And I have to say that if I die, um, I do not want anyone to say that I suddenly switched and became a human rights defender and forgot all of what went on before in terms of women's activism. No more than we could have said that about the peace agreement, that when we went in and we read on the final nights what was in the agreement, we asked ourselves, and how does this speak to the women in the country? Can they also see themselves in this agreement? So those were the pre-existing networks. And 40 years ago, 3,000 women took to the streets. There was a curfew declared by the British Army on the Falls Road in Belfast. No bread, no food could get into this particular area. Um, and the women said, we will break this curfew. We will bring food to the, our families, to the people inside 
in their homes. And so this was the 40th anniversary this uh, past year, and the newspaper recovered this photograph and said the army of women broke the barricade to bring aid. Um, And they came with their prams, um, and they were not the usual activists, but they rose up and demanded that that curfew was broken, and indeed it was. And then the campaign also connected with the civil rights movement. This is an old poster calling people to a meeting for the Bill of Rights 40 years ago. And I recently have had the privilege of drafting that Bill of Rights, which I'll talk about in a moment. And we still are trying to get that Bill of Rights through. But it was two and sixpence to go to that meeting. This was before the times of Sterling and indeed the Euro. Um, And I think today, would anybody pay two and sixpence to get into a meeting? when we called people to come and talk about human rights. But we made the links with the campaign for nuclear disarmament, um, and we made the links, as I said here, with the civil rights movement, and with the anti-apartheid movement, and with the struggles in Central and Latin America. And we built that experience. The campaign on civil rights in Northern Ireland was for the franchise. If you didn't own property, you couldn't get a vote. So we marched and said, we should have said, one person, one vote. We marched for housing and we marched for jobs. And those were social and economic rights. And they're probably the most difficult rights today that we're still trying to get recognised because everyone's still focusing on political and civil rights. But we did develop our political skills in the informal way, with a small p. And we left the big politics to the men, the big p. Um, And that, of course was something that people just took for granted in Northern Ireland. But here's another picture that I found recently, again from 40 years ago. It was the week after Bloody Sunday. Um, My father, my sister, my brothers went on this march. I was pretty young at the time. Well, I like to think I was pretty young at the time because it was 40 years ago. Um, And we were, there was 80,000 people on this march. And the black flags flying from the houses symbolise Um, the tragedy of the previous Sunday where we had also been marching and 13 people had been shot dead by the army, innocent people. But the women at the front are my friends, women I know, um, and they led that march because they knew that they had organised that march and when they saw the men taking over, a bunch of them got together, linked their arms and said, no, this is our march, today is our march. And that taught me something, which is those women have been written out of history. No one knows their names. And so for you here in San Diego, in the Joan Crock Institute, where you have your women writers, you do not know how powerful that is because you are writing women into history. You are making sure that their stories are not forgotten. You are making sure those stories are passed on to the next generation. Because when I ask women today, do they know who these women are? They say, no, they have no idea. One of those women is wearing a a bandage around her head where she had been shot on Bloody Sunday. And in fact, she forgot that she had been shot on Bloody Sunday until many years later that she went to give evidence to the Savile Inquiry. Um, Others on this are now dead. We wonder, did they die early because of the impact of CS gas? Um, um, And others were murdered. Um, But some of them are still alive. But the men behind are well known. Um, Many of them uh, became leaders of political parties and their everyday names in households. But 30 years of violence did follow. This was one picture from Bloody Sunday um, with the campaigner um, 
being dragged along by a soldier. But these would have been common pictures. Um, Every single day we would have seen pictures like this on the streets. That was the visible violence. The less visible violence was what was known as ordinary, decent crime, ODC. The police put the acronym ODC. And when I went to count the ODCs, we're talking here rapes, we're talking serious violence such as murder of women in their homes. And the police said, no, you need to go to the file that's called Ordinary Decent Crime because that's just not really serious. Um, Because here's the serious files on the political terrorism. And I said, but this is also terrorism because the women in those (coughs) homes and the women who are being exposed to that kind of level of assault on their lives also feel terror. And we began to talk about this. This is us taking to the streets uh, many years ago, reclaiming the night, as we called it, um, to win back the night so that women could walk free from violence at night. Um, And these were the rallies that we had. But it took us many years to move this from the files of ordinary decent crime to very serious crime. And the women also marched for social justice. We didn't know to call it social justice. We simply called it demands for houses, um, for homes, um, anti-poverty. In fact, when I used to write to the government as the chair of the poverty lobby, they used to write back to me as the chair of the poultry lobby um, um, because obviously many of the officials thought that there were more serious things going on in Northern Ireland than poverty. Um, And that was, of course, the violence that was all around us. So we were demanding welfare, not warfare. Um, These were posters from the Falklands War um, that broke out and we wanted to make our voices also known that we needed to have money spent on welfare, not warfare and not demands elsewhere. Um, And here we also have um, the murals of the streets of Belfast. Women against oppression on the right faced the more usual murals of the brothers in arms. And the brothers were telling us that they would lead the way, that they were simply the best, that together they would stand to defend their native land. And it was very hard to point out that there was other forms of oppression uh, going on around us. One of the issues that divided women, um, but eventually we worked so hard that we came together on this issue, and that was the issue of the strip searching of women who were being arrested and put in prison. And they had to obviously subject themselves to quite humiliating uh, strip searches on a random basis without knowing when it was going to happen. I still have this difficulty as the Human Rights Commissioner trying to stop it, and I did this past summer. Um, The campaign back then, 30 years ago, um, was to win support that this was a women's issue. It was a very, very difficult issue. The men were also being stripped. Um, But the women were having, because they were raised in Catholic and Protestant faiths, of not subjecting themselves naked in front of uh, people, prison officers, who they argued were taking some uh, control and some pride in stripping them. Um, And so we had to move it from a hotly contested political issue into a human rights concern. And eventually it did become that. Just this summer, I've had to uh, mediate or resolve behind the scenes, behind the scenes, because we found some good mediators who could go into the prison on a hunger strike and a dirty protest that was beginning again on exactly the same issue. And eventually in came this chair called Boss. And the Boss chair 
came from apparently the United States. I don't know if any of you have ever sat in one. It's called the Bodily Orifices Security Scanner. And our prisoners are delighted because they no longer have to strip. They sit in the chair fully clothed and this wonderful chair can tell whether they're carrying a weapon or not. Well, I was saying we were putting people on the moon, you know, how many years ago? And yet we couldn't find those magic wands to tell whether somebody had a weapon or not. We had to take their clothes off. And those were the kinds of issues that were bringing women from both sides eventually together. But the combatants were still very suspicious of women's rights. The combatants, uh, and there were many female combatants, were saying the issue here is the constitutional issue of having a united Ireland. Or on the Protestant side, there were many fewer female combatants who said it's the union with Britain that's the most important and women's rights can wait. How many times have you heard that all over the world, that these are the priority issues? And so they were suspicious of those of us who were trying to bring issues like domestic violence and rape and sex discrimination to the fore. In fact, I remember the Sex Discrimination Act, which we marched to get. We were told that that was just another imperialist piece of legislation being brought to Northern Ireland. We said we didn't give a hoot where it came from as long as we got it, and we would use it to our best effect. And you heard tonight about small arms. I had to become almost a, a gun expert in learning about long arms and short arms and small arms. Um, and I got so fed up talking about decommissioning of weapons, which almost broke our process, almost ruined our negotiations because it became such a priority that occasionally I would stand up and say, could we just not let the guns rust in peace? Um, and I used to also say, when I would raise my arm and say that I saw a wonderful poster in a women's shelter here in the United States, and on that poster it said, not all arms are imported, which meant that you could use these arms to do serious violence. So what we were saying, we women, was you needed to decommission the mindsets. It was a phrase from John Hume that we borrowed, but we thought this made perfect sense. It's the attitudes that have to change if you're going to change the person with the gun. And anyway, as we learned in South Africa, you can get guns from anywhere, even after you think you've decommissioned them. So this was a big issue in terms of demands. And of course, there was posters for women begging people to come to meetings. Um, do you want peace? Do you want it now? What's the impact? And I did a study showing that there were many more women being killed in Northern Ireland as a result of the extensive use of arms, legal arms, arms from the police, arms from soldiers, and not just illegal arms. And we wanted all arms eventually to be taken away. These are the peace walls that we had to cross over. In fact, it wasn't bridges that we used, it was gates, but um, it, it, the symbol is that you do need bridges. And the women also crossed over more safely. The question's often asked, why did men not cross over? Um, and obviously they would have been a target. Um, and occasionally when the men came to work with us in the Women's Coalition, we discovered that it was quite dangerous to bring them at times into these communities uh, because they could be a target. Um, but it, in, in Belfast you will still see these walls. They still have not come down. And it is a question many visitors ask. Um, why are the walls still up if you've got a peace process? And they won't come down until people feel safe on either side. 
and we still have to build that sense of safety and security, generosity and eventually trust. There was a great movement of women who also reached out to each other in grief and they are called the Women Against Violence Empowered and they came like a wave and that's their name across Northern Ireland, reaching out, going to each other's homes, finding out their tragic, tragic stories, finding commonality between what had happened to them. As you can see, this woman does not know that woman whose heart is breaking. I actually did find out who she was and her husband had just been killed. He was a, um, a hairdresser um, and someone had gone in and opened up fire all around the, um, the hair saloon and killed not only him but a number of others. Um, and the story got out and they were reaching out to each other. Eventually Beijing came around and we began to prepare for Beijing and we took our quilts and we didn't go, some of the older women, we said this is the time for the younger women to go to Beijing. And this quilt shows that at that stage 3,161 red pieces were the people's lives that had been killed in a very, very small country. That's an enormous amount of people. Practically someone knows someone who has lost their lives. But it showed the tragedy, but it also showed in Beijing what was possible, that we wanted equality, justice, peace and solidarity. We just didn't want to bring our tragedy and our trauma. We wanted to find solutions. And the women took to the streets over and over, the trade union women here, stop all the killings now, they said. And eventually 1994 came, we had the first ceasefires, and they were reinstated eventually in 1997. <coughs> So the papers declared it's over. It's time to build, not time to tear down. And that's what we focused on as women. We said there's been enough tearing down. Now we have to move. Um, and we moved quickly. All this time women were growing as civic leaders. And in fact, we became better known outside the country than we did in the country. I travelled with Sahira Kamal uh, to Bosnia um, and Naomi Hassan from Israel uh, and this is Sarajevo. Um, and what we were doing was connecting up our different conflicts. In the awfulness of Bosnia, we saw this. Um, but we knew that peace had to be consolidated at the grassroots. Um, and what we also knew was there was no point in us being recognised outside the country for what we were doing. We had to do something inside. And so we moved the margins to the mainstream. The talks were declared in 1996. The British and Irish governments decided which parties should go they wanted the small paramilitary parties to be included, and so they made a list. And we looked and we said, this isn't very democratic. Where are we on this list? And so I made a phone call to the British official and said, uh, by the way, there's a group of women here who want to stand for election. It wasn't true. I was just testing the system. Um, and he said, oh, that's fine. What's the name of your party? And I thought, hmm, good question. What is the name of the party if we ever do have one? Um, and I dreamed up this word called Women's Coalition. And then I thought, hmm, that's a W. That means we'll be at the bottom of the ballot sheet, which isn't a good idea. So I stuck Northern Ireland in front of it. And I put the phone down and I thought, what have I just done? Because the night before, a number of us had been discussing how easy it was to get added to this list. It was the most unusual system. Many of you in your countries know the party list system. We never had it. And what the difference was, was a party stood, not the individual. And so the women felt protected by the fact that it was going to be parties that were going to stand. And so we decided this was possible. Peace processes can move rapidly. They can create new opportunities. Of course, it could have been destabilizing. 
We were very protective. Indeed, one of the women's centres got burnt down um, because Mary Robinson came to visit um, and they decided that this wasn't a very nice thing with the President of Ireland coming to a, a women's centre in Belfast. And what was the response? They simply threw in um, a petrol bomb and burned the, the centre to the ground. And we were very worried about the fact that if we organised politically, we might end up burning more centres to the ground because if you weren't in politics, you weren't seen as a, a big threat. We decided anyway that we were going to go for it and we looked at the, the, the Mitchell rules, named after George Mitchell, um, and they were democratic principles about non-violence, about using peaceful means, um, and most of the concept was take the gun out of politics. Um, one thing we contested, however, was that all parties to the problem should be all parties to the solution. And there was one party locked out of the talks, and they stood outside the gates, rattling the gates, and that was Sinn Féin, who were affiliated at that time, as they said, and there was a lot of dispute about whether they were or they weren't, the members of the IRA. And they said they were politicians, they had been elected, they should be allowed in. But one of the principles was they had to reinstate their ceasefire. Um, and so I'll come to that in terms of the efforts we made to get them inside the room. Uh, we, we met with them that first year. We said the ghost of Sinn Féin is rattling around this room more than if they were in the room. We met with them privately and said, we will speak to you every night about what's happening in the talks and work hard to get you into the talks if you work just as hard as we are working to come into the talks. And eventually, uh, not just our, for us, but for others who were doing something similar behind the scenes with the back channels that are so important, uh, they did come in. So bringing Beijing back home was really important. Uh, we took um, two aims, to get more women into politics and to work and strive for workable solutions. Very simple. No big policy statements, not loads and loads of papers, just simple aims of human rights, equality and inclusion. We were Protestant and Catholic and women of, of no religion. We were um, across the classes. Um, we were cross-sector there was professional women, there were women who were unemployed. We were urban and rural. Um, and we came with that disparity um, and that mix and said we will work hard to get to the talks. And 70 women, it was like an evangelical meeting, suddenly all these women started to come out of nowhere and say, well, if that person's prepared to go for it, I will go for it. And eventually we wrote down all the names and addresses. And I'd forgotten this story until today, um, we took off in Belfast to deliver the ballot sheets or the sheets, the electoral sheets, to the office. And as we were driving through Belfast, two things happened. One, a bomb scare was declared, and I thought, we're never going to make it. So I jumped out of the car and started running. And halfway down the main street of Belfast, I realised I didn't know where I was going because I hadn't got a clue where the office was. Um, fortunately, we had um, one of our older delegates who was taking a heart attack at this stage, uh, 75 years of age, planted outside the electoral office. And so I had a young woman, and I said to her, do you know where the electoral office is? And she said, yes. So I ran like lightning. I used to be a 200-metre sprinter. You couldn't tell that today, but I used to be. And she couldn't keep up with me. Um, and I said to her, for heaven's sake, keep running. This is important. If I don't get to that office by 5 o'clock, we're not going to be able to lodge our papers. And she said, if you, don't get, if you keep running at the rate you do, she said, it'll be my funeral you'll be going to, not that office. Um, we eventually got there, and fortunately, the, this wonderful woman, May Blood, had been talking to the media, and the whole media were interested. Were these women really going to lodge papers? Were they really forming a political party? And she was convincing them 
that we were. And I came flying around the corner like a dervish, hair flying, papers flying. Um, and she said, now just calm down, take a deep breath, walk forward to the door and present your credentials. So I knocked at the door, all the cameras were on me. A man opened the door and he said, I said, here we are, the Women's Coalition for Northern Ireland, ready to stand for election. And he said, what are you talking to me for? I'm only the doorkeeper. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how we formed our political party. We were three seconds short of being struck out. Um, And this is a picture of us um, across Northern Ireland from all different backgrounds getting there. We simply asked to men and women to vote for change. And we were translated into Japanese, um, and people were coming from all over to find this novelty factor. And I had to keep saying to our own members, make sure that you work for the local media, not for the Japanese media, because there's no votes in Japan for us. Um, And make sure that you keep all our local people on board as they pay attention. Now, this wasn't the smartest idea. Our first poster said, we have goodbye to dinosaurs. And the male political leader said to us, how dare you call us a dinosaur? And I said, do you see your name on that poster? And they said, no, no, you're right, it's not on that poster. And I said, well, then, it's not an insult to you. And they went away scratching their head thinking, who are these women talking about if it's not us? Of course it was, some of them. And one of them said, this women's coalition, where did they come from? They must be a cult, and they will grow into each other and disappear. And another one said, women should leave politics and leadership alone. And as Paul said, go back to the kitchen table, or the only table that you women will get to is the one you're going to polish. Um, And that put steel into us when we heard this, because we said, look, we've always been there. We have been negotiating for years behind the scenes. We simply were politically homeless. And now we have to get the process and the substance right. And so we got to grips with the process and we called it a kitchen table campaign. We asked 100 women to go out and get 100 votes, which they did. We identified the gaps. We went to the universities. We went everywhere. Sometimes those in universities helped. Other times they said, no, we're too busy writing the uh, theoretical paper. Um, And others came with us all the way. We prepared for the media. And the technique that I used was, what's the most difficult question this person can ask me? And generally it was the most difficult question. Uh, What the hell are you doing in politics? Um, And we had to find trusted individuals who would share information with us. Um, And as I said, it was an enormous personal journey for some of the women because it was difficult and at times dangerous uh, what we were asking them to do. And we didn't want, as sometimes our offices did get our windows broken, but we didn't want women in their own homes to have their windows broken every night. There was a backlash from women in the other parties who felt that they had been around for years and suddenly we had appeared on the scene. But once they discovered that the male leaders in their parties were so worried about us that they said to them, well, we promise that we'll put you further up in profile in future um, as long as you stay with us. What some of them didn't know was that some of the women in those parties were also members of our coalition because we allowed dual membership. The bullying and the male bonding was quite awful, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because it's one of the major things that people focus on, on how did you put up with it. Shut up and sit down, you stupid women. Go back and breed for Ulster. On and on it often went. We used to stand up and sing Stand By Your Man when they used to come out with some of this, and we had a a name and shame notice board planted outside our office 
so that we could show which man had said what. Because when that male bonding happens, they forget that it was that individual who had said it because they were all bonding together. Um, and it was very difficult. And at times we were seen as collaborationists because we were actually quite effective in figuring out what the parties were going to be doing. And they thought that we had advanced notice or advanced papers, and we didn't. And they also thought we were very diversionary. We were taking attention away from the constitutional issues. On a Friday, we had to go to this forum for dialogue and understanding. And every Friday, I said, we're entering the forum for monologue and misunderstanding. (laughs) And what we need to remember was that the personal is political, but the political can become very personal. Um, And we did demand better standards. We were treated with derision. This is what the newspapers said. And however, it did begin to acknowledge that we were imposing new standards on the talks. Um, And we were simply asking for respectful recognition. We said that we would reciprocate respect if we got it, instead of giving us derision. And eventually we worked hard to win that respect. We had to keep paying attention to the process outside of the room. The back channels, you can be very involved in elitist negotiations around a small table and not keep in contact with what's happening outside there, which was so important. We were the first group to go into the prisons and talk to the combatants. It'll give you some idea of what the combatants were like when one of them was called Mad Dog. Um, And they actually locked three of us up um, and left us in a small cabin with Mad Dog and his comrades. Um, And we were pretty glad by the time we got out um, safely. And what struck me as very amusing about these individuals, some of them were seriously quite violent on the loyalist side, was they kept saying, that's terrible what they're doing to you outside. And actually, I had to say to one of them, that's okay, you know, words won't kill me, but you nearly did one day. And that was the end of that conversation. Um, And we protested against exclusion. We actually said that we believed that Sinn Féin should be at the table. Um, that it was no point in excluding parties from the table. And quite often they tried the bigger parties to put the smaller parties who were affiliated to paramilitaries out of the talks. And we demanded and came out and spoke very loudly about them being essential to the talks. Mandela said to us when he took us to South Africa, you make peace with your enemies, not with your friends. And we kept saying, if you keep trying to put more of your enemies outside of this room, you'll only be left to talk to yourself. The parties were seated alphabetically, which made a lot of sense, except some of the parties began to change their names so that they wouldn't have to be seated against others. Um, and if you remember that famous photograph of Jerry Adams sitting next to Ian Paisley, it was again someone thought about a diamond because they didn't want to sit together, uh, one party, and the other party didn't want to sit opposite. So they simply put them at either side of the corner of the table. And when the photographs were taken, it made it look like they had finally come together. So those little things are so important in peace talks and peace processes. We gave our issues away to other parties if we thought that we could win them over. We weren't precious about holding on to the issues ourselves. Uh, We dedicated um, people who didn't even smoke to go out and sit with the smokers so that they could pick up little pieces of information. And when we discovered that some of the more senior women were in the toilets, in the women's toilets, we sent dedicated members straight into the toilets to find out what was happening. Um, We broke down rumours that were circulating in peace talks. Lies become facts overnight. And when everyone was talking to us, 
They weren't talking to each other. And when we found out that rumours were rumours and not facts, we were able to come to the table and say, this is the fact. And we're very disturbed to hear that someone is being associated with this when it isn't the case. We've tried to find the humanity in the other person at the table, and it wasn't easy, particularly when we were being called all kinds of names. Um, But it was really important to find that little piece of humanity. Um, And sometimes those individual men wouldn't want to be seen talking to me, so they'd drop their keys, pretend to pick up their keys in case anybody walked past and saw them speaking and said, oh, and the minute their comrade came walking past, they'd say, oh, thank you for passing me those keys. I didn't know that I'd just dropped them. Um, And that was the kind of tension that was going on all the time during the negotiations. But as John Paul Lederach said, keep your curiosity about you. And he didn't mean gossip. He meant find out the unknown about the other side, because that will create a little bit of creativity. Because when enemies don't speak to each other, they don't know each other. They are not good negotiators. And what we tried to do was to be the best negotiators. This was another piece of the newspaper that said, whilst the men postured, the women tried to make progress. And what we eventually did was we found champions to give us the credibility that we needed. President Mandela brought us to South Africa. We were in such a bad state at the time that he actually said, I've never seen anything worse than you people. Um, And he actually said, because the parties wouldn't come together for his talk, he had to do his talk twice. There was two canteens, two sets of men's toilets, two of everything. He said, you've brought apartheid to South Africa. And this was in 1997. So it shows you how far we've come. Again, President Clinton uh, came. He's there today in Northern Ireland, in Derry. It shows you how many times he's come. He's come back and back and back. Um, Mary Robinson, who reached out on many occasions, and indeed Senator Kennedy um, and Vice President Al Gore. The White House and the third party involvement was enormously important. And this is something that UN 1325 learned and I learned later, to ask for the oversight bodies, the people that are sent into the country, to be the independent commissioning monitoring body for weapons, the independent international commission for monitoring the peace process, All of these independent international bodies were overseeing the reforms and policing. Ask for women also to be appointed, to be the special envoys. Um, And the US consuls for years and years and years in Belfast were all women. And the senior male politicians used to say to me, is that a conspiracy by the United States that they keep sending all these US women? Um, As if they were allergic to speaking to senior women. Um, And I realised what a great thing these men are now finding that women can be in these senior positions and they have to negotiate with them. Um, And the Irish diaspora was also crucial. And the Irish diaspora had played all kinds of different roles. Um, As Paul said, the four horsemen from Tip O'Neill through to Senator Kennedy and others, through to those who were sending money to the IRA, through to many others. But that radically changed when Bill Clinton reached out and gave... um, um, a visa to Gerry Adams. And likewise, Hillary Clinton reached out to us women. I got to have that meeting with Hillary Clinton because all the male leaders were sent off to meet the president. And somebody asked, what happened to you? And I said, well, I don't know. The, the guys all went off to see the president. And they said, well, you need to go and see the first lady. And that's how I met Hillary Clinton. And Bill Clinton met me later that night, and Bill Clinton said, I believe Hillary had the best deal this afternoon. <laughs> Um, which was tremendous because she got up that night 
and paid tribute to the role that women were playing in Northern Ireland. And again, the political leaders were really shocked at this. Thinking outside the box was incredibly important to take risks, uh, calculated risks uh, for the process. Um, Again, sometimes people identified weak points. We had to prepare a war chest of responses, make sure we knew what we were saying when we were speaking to the media. Um, And we used this feminist politics of the transversal politics of shifting and rooting. I used it often at the table, saying, I'm not denying my background, my identity. I've come from this background. You know my background. But I'm sitting here today at this peace table prepared to shift and to listen and to negotiate and to hear about yours so that we can begin to have transversal relationships and be better at what we're going to do if we reach an accommodation. Occasionally, we did get into trouble in the community. Uh, A group of people trying to go to Mass one time in Northern Ireland were prevented from doing so. We women went and stood with our banners on International Women's Day saying, this is a concern, um, and we got hit with these rocks. Um, Again, however, it brought us into attention that we were staying connected to what was happening outside on the ground. The back channels is what I call the politics of the casual encounter. Cross-checking, cross-community validation. Uh, We give roles to unusual suspects, making people from their own community challenge their own community. Um, And it was no point in me as a Catholic woman speaking out and preaching to Protestant men and women. We always ensured that it was a Protestant woman who went and did that speaking. Because what we said is that the real sign of leadership is when you challenge your own side not when you challenge the other side. And that's what we did. When we got elected, we were called, um, it was, hen party comes home to roost. Um, And the journalists couldn't sometimes quite get us because we kept sending them all kinds of different women to speak to them. And they kept saying, who is your leader? And we said, well, actually, we have a whole lot of leaders in case one of them drops dead tonight. There'll be another one tomorrow. Um, And it was very difficult for them to understand that team method of us working. This is us, me with two of the paramilitary leaders on either side, on the, from the loyalist side. A tremendous human being here, um, David Irvine, who's now dead. I had the privilege of speaking at his funeral and I said it might as well have been a gun attack that eventually killed him because it was a heart attack. He worked so hard to bring the, his paramilitaries on board. And yet he was treated with incredible derision also in that first year. And we said, look, exclusion will breed insecurity. Don't let anyone walk away from the table. And when we make the agreement, make sure everyone stays on board. We made a terrible mistake. One of the parties that didn't get elected after the agreement um, wasn't allowed to come back to the implementation table, and that party went back to violence. And we kept saying, it is possible for combatants to show personal, political, moral courage, leadership, and change. But it was a hard message because all people wanted to associate them with was terrorism. They kept calling them terrorists. They kept calling them criminals. They kept calling them savages. Um, And that kind of language is not the language of peace negotiations. Um, But they stayed with us and eventually um, they were acknowledged as as David Irvine was, as a very powerful leader. Um, We went to South Africa. I believe it was a tipping point. Getting outside of the country, Mandela brought us. We met clerks people. Lazy's people, this is Rolf Meyer, tremendous human beings, Cyril Ramaphosa, many of them became our friends and came back with us and went into the prisons and went all over the communities to talk about their process. They said, we're not going to tell you what and how to do it. You just listen and maybe you'll pick up some tips. And indeed we did. 
We took our case to the States. I had the privilege of speaking on St. Patrick's Day in the Massachusetts State House, where again someone came up and gave me President Kennedy's speech when it was the last place that he spoke from before he went off uh, to be president. So it's quite symbolic in terms of this 50th anniversary. Um, But again, Boston was a good place. They brought us there. Paul organised it on many occasions. And we had an opportunity to engage. We even went to the Middle East um, again with Paul and others. And uh, President Arafat took us. We went to Gaza. And these wonderful women, Hanan um, and Shulamit and others, and trying again to engage. Where grievances have deep historical roots, we said... Compromise should not be a dirty word, and that again was something that we kept saying. Killings were going on outside. People couldn't understand how we would ever reach an accommodation. I kept saying, the closer we get to an agreement, we should expect those dissidents who don't want us to reach an agreement to start killing people. But don't let us put people away from the table as a consequence of that killing, because all that will do is send a message to them that they win. Make sure that the people at the table keep protected. Um, And eventually, people all did get that message. But to gender justice, we decided that it was really important to prove the substance. Um, A mistake that we made was that we didn't have timetables and targets in some of the recommendations that we made. Um, And we convinced the drafters that gender did matter. But it was very difficult back then, before UN 1325, to uh, convince those people. As I said, the armed patriarchy concept occasionally did work. Other important (laughs) lessons are that to stay optimistic, to mobilise optimism when all hell is still breaking loose. If men behave badly, um, don't become preachers. Um, You know, okay, let's focus on that bad behaviour, that bad language, let's transform it. But keep focused on the main (coughs) substantive issues. Um, It was very difficult not to break rules of confidentiality. Um, Some of the parties weren't bound by rules. We eventually realised that they were sending out messages to the media and breaking confidentiality. Um, And we equally had to get our own messages out. And not to forget our own roots. We did reach an agreement two years later. The agreement was declared. The two Prime Ministers (coughs) and Sandra Mitchell... Um, That's myself in the white jacket in the back. That's what the table looked like. But there weren't that many people in the room. That night, at quarter past five, on Good Friday, thousands of people suddenly crowded in, mostly ex-combatants, because they wanted to make sure that what was being signed was really uh, could stand up afterwards. We were exhausted and exhilarated, um, and we were viewed as valued contributors. Senator Mitchell then wrote and said we were a significant factor. He said that we were treated very roughly, um, at the beginning, but through perseverance and talent, we became recognised as valued contributors. I didn't know this until recently, that an Irish government official said we were the most efficient and focused throughout the talks. This is the picture that went round the world before UN 1325. Uh, We were very happy. This was the night we'd signed it, and there is a story behind it, but I'll tell you it some other time. Um, Mundane... Uh, is the word to be used in terms of peace building. It's weary, it's tiresome, and it's mundane. Mo Molan was one of the wonderful women who was the Secretary of State, now dead. She had a brain tumour. She had uh, ran around those last nights of the negotiations with her wig off and barefoot and a, and a drain going into her arm. Um, and that was the kind of courage that when we could see someone working that level. She's now dead. But what we said is that she, we had to go on with the momentum, which was what her book was called. 
These are the things that we succeeded in getting in, um, and, but there were things that we lost, and I learned some bitter lessons. If we hadn't been at the table, there would have been nothing on victims, integrated education, mixed housing, children, and nothing about the importance of rebuilding lives, dealing with the past. Um, some of the other big issues we did um, negotiate, prisoner releases, 2,000 prisoners walked out of jail two years later in the year 2000. Um, but we're still struggling to get a Bill of Rights. We're still struggling to get these issues taken seriously. Uh, we lost our civic forum, even though it was in the agreement, because we wanted that to be the new way of people coming forward into politics. The politicians, once they were elected, said, abolish it. We're now here. We don't need it. We lost electoral reform, which is good for women. We wanted to bring in um, proper issues in terms of special measures. We lost all that. Um, validating the agreement proved difficult. You may recognise the young man in the middle a number of years ago, who is Paul Arthur, who again came with us as we tried to convince people to say yes. And it was incredibly difficult. This is one of our posters. I don't know if your road signs are like this, which says straight on to yes, or if you go up this road, you're going to meet a dead end. Um, and so that's what we did. We put those around 650,000 households. We took a bus, an open-decked bus, through the streets and villages of Northern Ireland and handed those to everybody. We said the way forward is yes. We did all these kinds of meetings behind the scene. We eventually agreed to stand together, always, of course, in other countries like the United States, not at home. Um, and finally, this is a photograph of Jerry Adams um, and David Trimble, um, who wouldn't even say good morning to each other the day we signed the Good Friday Agreement. So it was quite incredible that people then began to be accustomed to stand together. We then had to, we didn't want to, but we had to stand for the Legislative Assembly in order to implement the agreement. This is the kind of politics women don't like. I had to go back into my own district and stand by myself rather than the whole party. The party list system was gone. We lost it. The politicians didn't want it. And so we had to stand as individuals. Um, and these big photographs go up. My young son tells a story of looking out the bus one night coming home from um, school and his friend saying, oh, look, there's your mother. And he thought it was his mother coming to pick him up at the bus. And he said he looked out and there was six foot of me staring down at him from the lamppost. <laughs> this was the democratic deficit. And I don't know if you've got a little puzzle in the United States called Where's Wally? Well, here's Wally sitting right here with the white jacket. Um, and we only had 12%, and it's still only 12% in this 108-person assembly. Um, it looks like Wall Street or something. It was the painting that was made of that first legislative assembly. The lessons we learned was rejoice. This was us on Good Friday night, rejoicing. But fundraising must go on and on and on if women are going to get into politics or stay in politics or be active in the community. The women also agreed to come together, but even one party still couldn't do it. Um, and it's still very difficult for them to, to come in. The Unionist Party, the Democratic Unionist Party, refused to join us in that photograph. Changing the face of politics again and again, a press conference with a difference again and again, and learning in retrospect. Collective decision-making takes time. You need cash, you need confidence, you need childcare, you need a good culture, and you need to have good candidates selected as women. Um, you need to have a good media strategy. If they tell you you're not real politicians, ask what does a real politician look like. Keep optimistic but realistic and keep the back channels open. 
Keep an eye on those support measures because they will disappear after a peace process. And they have, and that was a disappointment for us. And what UN 1325 did, it came after we had done our agreement and we borrowed from Guatemala for our agreement in terms of putting stuff in. Um, But now we know special measures work and need protected. Um, Social services justice. There would have been nothing on health, there would have been nothing on education uh, had we not been there. Um, And, you know, okay, you can find cynics, but you have to convince the cynics, keep the media as your friends, to convince them that women do need to be in public life. The final pieces are, for me, foundational rights have to be written in and have to be enforced. That's my job now as Chief Commissioner. I've drafted the Bill of Rights. I took the words from UN 1325 into the preamble, and I said our Bill of Rights must value the role of women in public and political life and their involvement in advancing peace and security. So whoever was negotiating in New York can take credit for the fact that it's now written into the preamble of our Bill of Rights. We still have to get that bill. These were the democratic rights I wrote in, and people just said, you can't have those. These are the human rights that I wrote in, and again, some of the anti-agreement people and some who are anti-human rights, it's almost an oxymoron to be anti-human rights, but we do have people who are anti-human rights, um, and they said, no, we can't have these. What has sexual violence got to do with our troubles? What has you know, any of these um, issues of uh, harassment on gender-based? The only harassment that we need to pay attention to is sectarian, religious. Everything else isn't important. Um, so although people wrote that the peace agreement was a beautiful agreement, um, that it did address divisions beyond the usual old national unionist divisions, it has proved incredibly difficult. This is a cartoon of me in one of the local newspapers, and I love it. I'm always pictured with big earrings. And it's me telling them to stop picking and mixing. That it's me saying, these rights are also central and should not be picked over. And here are two of my little commissioners who don't like these rights, and you can see their faces. They only want the candy out of this box and not out of this. And it sends a very powerful message that women's rights should not be picked over. So 10 years on, are women still fully present? No, actually, they're not. We still don't have women as judges in Northern Ireland. We still don't have women on many of our really important peace enforcement processes. We do need a different electoral system. We do need affirmative action. It does work. The European peace programmes, the reconstruction funds, did recognise women and gave women resources in the first two funds. And then they said, now we're on to peace three. We've done it for women. We don't need to do it anymore. The reintegration of prisoners has worked, um, but dealing with the past has proved to be enormously difficult. Last Saturday, I attended the funeral of one of the disappeared. I've been working with the families of the disappeared for many years. Um, He was finally found after 38 years. It was a funeral of joy and relief as well as sadness because the body was returned for a Christian burial. So we have to bear in mind these dead. And that is the title of a book that Susan Mackay wrote, a powerful book about our terrible, terrible troubles. We have to find the common ground in our shared pain as we deal with our past. And this was one of our transformative moments that Paul and others stood on the streets of Derry, celebrating with their hands in the air when the British government said sorry for killing 13 people 40 years later, 40 years earlier. Uh, It was a transformative moment because no one had eventually expected it. So apologies do make a difference. And when leaders speak out with that incredible voice of transformation, it makes a difference on the ground. Gender justice means 
getting the grassroots and not just the elites into the process, keep the process inclusive and democratic, recognise women as capable negotiators, and make sure that you get those rights in that free us from poverty and exploitation and give us the rights to equality and dignity. The key lessons are women are your early warning systems. Women must be seen and heard at all the stages. We do need our well-being looked after. We cannot be raped and violently assaulted and then be told that it's okay, we have taken care of your physical security. You haven't if you still allow processes that don't pay attention to violence against women and girls. Peace building takes time. It is a peace process, but it is also peace processes. Make sure you know who's responsible. Is there a budget attached? What's the timetable? The precarious progress that you, the women here, are going to spend the next two days talking will look like this. The benchmarks, the involvement of civic society, the task forces that have the participation of women in peace and security, the indicators, the resources, the representatives going out to do the peace missions, the reports and the equality impact assessments. We do bring our process now to other countries. Just this past week it said Spain should learn from our mistakes. It would be lovely if it had said Spain should learn from our wonderful successes. But that's okay. You can learn from other mistakes. And this was the Basques who are going through their own transformative process at the moment. So valuable contributors. Liz Porter, who's here and is one of the um, delegates to this conference, has written a wonderful book called Women in Peacebuilding. And in it, she says, if structural violence, discrimination and exclusion are the contributors to war, then social justice and inclusive structures will be the contributors to peace. We've got to build that peace. That future is possible. After a terrible conflict, we need visible visionary women. The women of Gulu in Uganda, who I met just a few months ago, who have come through the most appalling conflict, were able to write on the back of that wall, bring home happiness. So women, let us do that, and with our brothers, the men who work alongside us, because the lesson from peace talks to gender justice must be that when women awake, mountains will move. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.